0: at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the US, excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group, void or prohibited by law. 18 plus, terms and conditions apply.
1: This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. What is psychopathy? Now, when we talk about psychopathy, a lot of times we think of the diagnosis that we see in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, Antisocial Personality Disorder. Now, these two constructs, psychopathy and antisocial personality disorder, are similar and some would argue they're really the same thing, but I usually think of them as distinct, and I think the research supports this perspective fairly well. So we could think of psychopathy as having all the characteristics we would expect to see with antisocial personality disorder, plus characteristics from other domains, specifically interpersonal and affective domains. So in order to describe psychopathy, I'm going to compare it a bit to antisocial personality disorder I'm also going to review the psychopathy checklist revised as another way of kind of explaining the differences we see with psychopathy. And I'm going to use the five-factor model. I'm going to describe the personality profile from the five-factor model that we see associated with psychopathy. So with these three different angles that I'm looking at with psychopathy, I hope this subject matter becomes more clear. So I'll start with antisocial personality disorder. Now, to understand antisocial personality disorder, of course, we look in the DSM. We see that there are seven symptom criteria and then three other criteria. So, of the seven symptom criteria, three would have to be met. So, here we see violating social norms, lying, impulsivity, irritability and aggression, disregarding other safety, irresponsibility, and lack of remorse. Those are the seven symptom criteria, and they would have to be present since the age of 15. Then we have the other criteria I mentioned. An individual has to be 18 years or older. Evidence of conduct disorder would have had to have been present before the age of 15. And the symptoms of antisocial personality disorder can't occur exclusively during the course of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. So we can see from this definition of antisocial personality disorder, it would be hard to conceptualize a presentation of psychopathy that didn't also qualify as antisocial personality disorder. And in fact, this is how we usually think of it. We think of psychopathy as a subset of antisocial personality disorder, so that almost all of individuals who had psychopathy would qualify for antisocial personality disorder, and a number of individuals with antisocial personality disorder would qualify for psychopathy, but not all of them. A number of the studies on antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy look at male criminal offenders in the prison population, and here we see that around 70 to 80% of those individuals qualify for a diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder, but only about 15 to 25% could be classified as having psychopathy. So with this idea that almost all individuals with psychopathy would qualify for antisocial personality disorder, where would the possible exceptions be? are there any presentations of psychopathy that would not align with antisocial personality disorder? Well, when looking at the seven symptom criteria for antisocial personality disorder, it's difficult to imagine an instance of psychopathy that would not at least meet three of those seven symptom criteria. I suppose it's possible. Usually where we see the exceptions would be around the other criteria with antisocial personality disorder. For example, with psychopathy, There's no rule about being 18 years or older. Symptoms of conduct disorder would not have to have been present before the age of 15. And there's no rule specifically about schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Even still, with these possible exceptions and the possible exceptions we could see around the symptom criteria, we usually don't think there would be many exceptions at all. So, mostly everybody who would be classified as having psychopathy would also qualify for antisocial personality disorder. So what are these extra characteristics that we would see with psychopathy that we wouldn't necessarily see with antisocial personality disorder? Well, to answer this question, I'm gonna take a look at this second way of describing psychopathy, and that's to review some of the features of a very popular instrument used to measure psychopathy, the Psychopathy Checklist Revised. Now, this instrument is a psychometric instrument, and it has four facets. Facet one is interpersonal. Facet two, affective. Facet three is lifestyle. And facet four, antisocial. So if we look at facet one, that's interpersonal, we see certain characteristics here that we would normally associate with psychopathy, including superficial charm, pathological lying, grandiosity, and being manipulative. So if we look at just this interpersonal facet from the PCLR, we see that really only the pathological lying has overlap with the definition of antisocial personality disorder in the DSM. Now looking at facet two, affective, we see characteristics like callousness, lack of remorse, shallow affect, and failure to accept responsibility. So here, of course, we see lack of remorse lines up with one of the symptom criterion in the definition for antisocial personality disorder. Now, with factor three, this is lifestyle, and here we see irresponsibility, impulsivity, a need for stimulation, a lack of realistic goals, and what's referred to as a parasitic lifestyle. So here we see overlap with antisocial personality disorder in the area of irresponsibility and impulsivity. Facet four is antisocial. So here we see characteristics like early behavioral problems, poor behavioral control, and juvenile delinquency. So this facet lines up fairly well with the definition of antisocial personality disorder. Now, the last perspective I'll use here to describe psychopathy is the five-factor model of personality. And we remember these big five traits through the acronym OCEAN. Openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. So each of these five traits also contains six facets. And it's at the facet level that we can really understand someone's personality. So everyone has personality characteristics. The five factor model is just one way of measuring those characteristics. And we see a particular five factor model profile that aligns fairly well with psychopathy. But that doesn't mean that everybody who has psychopathy would have that profile. And it doesn't mean that everybody with that profile would have psychopathy. So I'll start here with openness to experience. Interestingly, openness to experience really doesn't seem to have a relationship with psychopathy, and it's the only trait in the five-factor model that doesn't. So next, we move to conscientiousness. Now, this one does have a particularly strong relationship with psychopathy. Now, again, each of the traits would have six facets. All the six facets of conscientiousness tend to be lower in individuals who have psychopathy. So the six facets of conscientiousness are competence, order, dutifulness, achievement, striving, self-discipline, and deliberation. So again, all those scores would tend to be lower. Now with extroversion, we only see two facets related to psychopathy, warmth and assertiveness. We see lower scores of warmth associated with psychopathy and higher levels of assertiveness. Now with agreeableness, we have kind of the same situation we saw with conscientiousness. All of the facets are involved and all of them tend to have lower scores. So lower levels of trust, straightforwardness, altruism, compliance, modesty, and a facet referred to as tender mindedness. So that brings us to the last trait, neuroticism. And here again, just like with extroversion, only two of the facets are involved. We see differences with anxiety and anger lower levels of anxiety and higher levels of anger are associated with psychopathy. Today's question asks if you can tell if someone is a psychopath by looking at their eyes, right? So what this is really getting at is this idea that pupil dilation in psychopaths is different than what we see in people who are non-psychopathic or who are low in psychopathy. So the basic idea of this is that affectively charged stimuli, so stimuli that has an emotional piece to it, can lead to pupil dilation, and that psychopaths find different types of stimuli boring, exciting, or threatening when compared to non-psychopaths. So their pupil dilation would be different. Before we get into psychopathy, what happens with pupil dilation normally in people without psychopathy or with low levels of psychopathy? We see that unpleasant stimuli tends to lead to greater emotional response than pleasant or neutral stimuli. So that's the first thing. Unpleasant seems to have more of an effect than pleasant or neutral. The greater emotional response we see with unpleasant stimuli is associated with larger pupil dilation. So that's what we see before we even get into the issue of psychopathy at all, just what we see in the population. So now moving to take a look at psychopathy. We see that in the research literature, pupil dilation seems to be somewhat based on the type of psychopathy. So I'm going to briefly cover the two types of psychopathy. Now what gets confusing here a little bit is that each type of psychopathy has several different names. So the first type is called factor one psychopathy, also known as primary psychopathy and interpersonal affective psychopathy. And with this type of psychopathy, with factor one, we see traits like being callous, unemotional, manipulative, being deceptive, having fearless dominance, and lacking remorse. Individuals with factor one psychopathy tend to be low in neuroticism. So they tend to be emotionally stable. Now moving to the second type of psychopathy, factor two psychopathy. This is also called secondary psychopathy, sociopathy, and lifestyle antisocial psychopathy. So here we see characteristics like being impulsive, irresponsible, having a high level of neuroticism, so not being emotionally stable, engaging in criminal behaviors, and being sensation seeking. So this type of psychopathy has a close relationship with antisocial personality disorder. So here's the idea with psychopathy. Some theorists believe that psychopaths have what's referred to as an affective deficit. So stimuli that contains affective or emotional content fails to induce the expected behavior, emotional state, or physiological reaction. Now this is actually somewhat of a controversial position, as some research shows that psychopaths have a similar capacity for experiencing emotions when compared to non-psychopaths. But the valence for emotional stimuli is lower. So what that means is that the psychopath doesn't really value emotions in the same way. So they can experience emotions in the same way, but they don't put a lot of value on it, so they're not motivated to act on emotional stimuli. Other research shows that psychopaths have a reduced capacity to feel all emotions, so it's really a global deficit. So it's not specific to negative or positive emotions. Now the pupil dilation theory is based on the idea that psychopaths have a deficit specifically in experiencing negative emotions, and there's a reasonable amount of evidence to support this particular theory for example, we see that when we're looking at the startle response, that's when a person jumps when they hear a loud noise. For non-psychopathic individuals, aversive images increase the reaction to a loud noise. Right? So somebody does not have psychopathy, and they're looking at like a negative image, and when that loud noise is presented, they have a stronger reaction to that noise, a stronger startle response. In those same people, individuals who scored low in psychopathy, Positive images decrease the startle response, right? So negative images tend to increase it, positive images tend to decrease it. But for psychopaths, the findings are different. Aversive images do not seem to produce the same increase in the startle response. And interestingly, they may even cause a decrease in the startle response. So if a psychopath is looking at an aversive image and a loud noise goes off, they might have a less pronounced startle response. When positive images are shown to psychopaths, they demonstrate a typical startle reflex. So moving forward with this idea, we end up looking at the area of pupillometry, right? So this is when researchers measure pupil dilation, pupilometry. We see here that both negative and positive stimuli produce pupil dilation. This is true for visual images, including images of faces, and for sounds. Now, there are some exceptions here. For example, images like cute animals or babies don't cause as much pupil dilation. So the theory here is the stimuli must be the type that would normally demand immediate attention in real life. For example, a threatening situation, violence, or the opportunity to have sex. So the degree of pupil dilation is related to the extent to which the image or sound taps into the defensive motivational system. Now, pupil dilation is controlled by the amygdala, the part of the brain that processes threatening stimuli and regulates fear. The amygdala also responds to some types of positive imagery, and it responds to intriguing or unusual images. So the idea here is that by studying pupil dilation, we can get a look at what's going on in the amygdala. So if the amygdala of a psychopath responds differently to stimuli as compared to a non-psychopath, we would see that in the pupils. So with all this in mind, what do we see in the research literature? Well, for low levels of psychopathy, so usually thought of as subclinical psychopathy, psychopathy that would not be the focus of treatment, like mental health treatment, we see there is no unexpected pupil dilation in response to negative or positive images. So we really don't see anything going on at the lower levels of psychopathy. But what about experiments that used a sample that had a higher level of psychopathy? Here we see a different finding. Looking at a few types of stimuli here, and starting with images, we see that individuals who are high in factor one psychopathy, that's that interpersonal, affective type of psychopathy, show reduced pupil dilation when looking at negative images. When looking at positive images, they have a typical reaction. So no difference between a factor one psychopath and anyone else. For individuals with factor two psychopathy, they had the expected pupil dilation. So again, typical reaction, nothing unusual here. So again, that's with visual images. What about sounds? We see no effect here, again a typical reaction. And moving to faces, specifically happy faces, we see that individuals high in psychopathy have an increase in pupil size when they see happy faces. Individuals who are low in psychopathy have a reduction in pupil size. So what's going on here? Well, it could be that psychopaths don't tend to trust people who are smiling, right? They have low trust in general. So when they see someone who's smiling, they may feel threatened. That's the theory anyway, but we really don't know what's going on there with the happy faces. Now, something else that's important to touch on here is the time involved. The reduced pupil responses when the negative stimuli is presented are only really noticeable within the first two seconds. So this really suggests that the deficit may really manifest as a delay in processing. So the ability to process negative feelings just takes more time for a factor one psychopath. The deficit is not a global persistent insensitivity. So these findings seem to support what's called the negative specific deficit for factor one psychopathy. And of course only for visual images. So again, just for factor one psychopaths, the processing of negative visual images will be a little slower. So a very narrow finding when we think about the types of psychopathy and the fact, of course, that most people will be low in psychopathy and all the different types of possible stimuli. So with these findings in mind, does this mean that everyone can run out and start identifying psychopaths by looking at their pupils? Well, the answer here is no, and there are a lot of reasons why the answer is no. First, there's simply not enough research to solidly support this idea. We see some support, and I think it's quite interesting, but it's not enough. It is enough, however, to continue researching the topic, but that's about it for now. Second, other factors can cause pupil dilation, like medication, for example. Those factors are controlled for in a study, but would not be controlled for just walking around in public. Third, mental disorders characterized by psychosis, like schizophrenia, have an association with pupil dilation. So again, this factor is only really controlled for in experimental environments. Fourth, even if these findings are correct, and that's a big if, we're talking about a two-second delay in processing. So this would be very difficult to spot. Is it possible to identify somebody with psychopathy, a psychopath, by the language that they use? And there have been a number of studies that we've seen in the literature about this topic, And there's a particular interest around this idea of disfluencies. So I'll talk about this question, I'll answer this question, but also specifically about my thoughts on disfluencies. A disfluency is a word that interrupts a sentence, and the ones we think of usually are um and uh. Throughout this video, I'm sure I'll use a number of these, so you'll get a lot of examples of disfluencies there. So, I'll put the references to the articles that I used for this video in the description for this video. And when we look at some of the more significant articles around psychopathy and language, we see that, of course, individuals that are psychopathic who are being studied are oftentimes in forensic environments. So, they're in prison. And one of the studies I'll be using here was looking at, specifically, individuals who are psychopathic who are in prison who committed murder
0: That's Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18
1: plus. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore.
0: I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children.
1: What are you thinking? What a mess.
0: U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wuderick.
1: And me. Murder in house two. a new podcast from crowd network who were in prison and committed murder so is there a basis for this research so if we take a look back a bit if we step back from this can language really be used to determine if somebody has personality characteristics or mental disorders well we see in the literature that there's this idea that some language is unconscious and therefore elements like word choice, productivity, so how many words somebody says in a certain period of time, and other patterns can be used to identify specific mental disorders. And some studies actually have shown that some of these methods are fairly reliable. So there is more or less a basis, but I'm skeptical. When I started to read these studies, and even when I was finished reading these studies, I remain a bit skeptical about how valuable language is in terms of identifying psychopathy, specifically. So let's talk about the theory behind this. So the theory is that psychopathic language is going to be less cohesive than non-psychopathic language. We see, as part of this theory, that there's an instrumental nature to psychopathy, so there's a deliberate kind of goal orientation there. And also, individuals who are psychopathic pay more attention to material needs and they're less worried about relationships and emotions. So, we see an emotional deficit. So, if we look just at these three areas, the instrumental nature, the focus on material goods or material gain, and the emotional deficit, we see support for all these theories, that these different elements point back to psychopathy. In terms of individuals who are psychopathic and committed murders, so psychopathic murders, the literature tells us that 93% Of these types of murders had an external goal and that the murder was premeditated. When we look at non-psychopathic murders, that percentage drops to 48%. Now we also see a difference with the hierarchy of needs, so this would support that difference around the material gain. If we consider Maslow's hierarchy needs, for example, we see the basic needs like food, shelter, clothing at the bottom, and more complex needs up top, the highest need, is self-actualization on that particular model. We see that psychopaths tend to focus on the basic needs and don't tend to worry too much about self-esteem, spirituality, and relationships. Now, in terms of the emotional deficit component, we see a lot of research that psychopaths have difficulty interpreting and experiencing emotions. They tend to produce fewer and less intense emotional words. They have more disfluencies, I talked about that before and I'll get to that a little later in more detail. So again, words like um and uh, which tend to increase when individuals are facing multiple cognitive choices and demands. At least that's the theory, but again I'll talk more about that in detail. And they tend to use language that reflects increased psychological distancing, so they tend to distance themselves from unpleasant events. So an example here would be using the past tense when something happened really just a few moments ago. So, using the past tense more often is what we would align here with psychopathy. So, all this information is taken together to form this theory that these differences would be reflected in language. So, the main study I'm talking about here, again, is looking at psychopathic murders versus non-psychopathic murders in a forensic setting. So, we're really talking about an unusual event and a very small population. That's important to keep in mind, and I'll talk more about that later as well, the limitations of this study. But What we see here is when individuals who were psychopathic and non-psychopathic were recalling the details of a homicide that they committed, there were some fairly significant differences between these two groups. The psychopaths indicated more cause and effect statements, so they demonstrated more goal orientation, We also saw that psychopaths use twice as many words related to basic and self-preservation type needs, like eating, drinking, and acquiring money. And money, of course, can be used to buy food and drink. So this may stand out to people, because it seems unusual to use those type of basic need references when talking about something like homicide, but again, twice as many words related to these needs. And we see here that the non-psychopathic offenders, the non-psychopathic murderers, used more language related to family, religion, spirituality, and social needs. We see that the psychopathic murderers tended to use less emotionally intense descriptions of the crime, and they also used less emotionally pleasant language, so their language was more coarse. We see that the psychopathic language was substantially more disfluent, than what we saw with the non-psychopathic murderers. And this means there were more disfluencies. Again, connecting back to this theory, that there was more of a cognitive load. So the psychopaths had more difficulty putting the story together in a way that would appear appropriate. So this really emotionally charged event, a homicide, they were trying to manage their impressions. They were trying to appear a certain way to the interviewer. And this leads back to this theory, again, that That's why there's more disfluencies. That's why they say, um, and uh, and like, and so, more often, because they're trying to buy time to appear appropriate, to think of the right words to appear appropriate. So there are some interesting findings from this study, but does this study really tell us a lot about psychopathy and how we can spot psychopathy in everyday life? Well, I don't think it does, and I think one of the real difficulties here would be around the limitations. For example, the psychopathic murderers were recalling a homicide that they committed. This is a highly unusual situation for an individual to be in. First of all, somebody has to commit a homicide and then be arrested and convicted and sent to prison. And there's the effects of prison. These individuals were incarcerated for an average of 10 years. So there's just a lot of differences between a psychopath that would be encountered in the general public and the individuals here in this study. Another important element to keep in mind is, the psychopathic murderers were more instrumental in the way they committed the crime. So perhaps the less emotional nature of their descriptions was simply a reflection of the type of crime they committed. So they really didn't have strong emotions necessarily at the time the murder was committed, so it really wouldn't be surprising that they weren't emotional when they recalled the homicide. Now, there was another study that was published later on, and I'll include that reference too in the description that talked about online communication and psychopathy. So really it tried to move this study, which again took place in a prison, out into the general public, specifically in text messaging, emails, and Facebook communications. And they did find that the psychological distancing was still there. They also found narcissistic components were still there. So in online communication, psychopaths tended not to refer to the other person in the conversation as much. And they saw that psychopaths produced less comprehensible text and used more hostile language, specifically interpersonally hostile language. So language that indicated a lot of anger and distress. So this other study really supports part of this finding we see in the original study. So some of these findings may be generalizable to a wider population. But there were some differences. For example, they found that in terms of basic needs, Psychopaths and non-psychopaths couldn't be differentiated with online communication, meaning the psychopaths didn't stand out in terms of focusing more on basic needs when they were communicating online. Remember, this was a finding with the psychopathic murders. They did tend to reference basic needs more. So I'm looking for further research on this. I think this is an interesting set of studies, these two studies, and we've seen some other studies related to this as well. And I'm not convinced that you can really spot a psychopath from the different language they use. So part of this I really want to expand on is this idea specifically of disfluencies in language. And this really speaks to why I'm skeptical that language can be used to identify psychopaths. It's not just the limitations of the study, it's the theory behind psychopathy and specifically how it relates to language. So, what are disfluencies? Well, as I mentioned, disfluencies are times when somebody interrupts a sentence with a word like, um, uh, so, well, like, where they might repeat a word. And there's a lot of theories about why people do this. This is actually remarkably common, right? We look around and we see disfluencies everywhere. We might see them less in formal speech and more in informal speech, but either way, they appear in both. So, one theory here is that people are trying to think. They use disfluencies to pause so they can find the right word. And that's really the theory that was used in this paper with the psychopathic and non-psychopathic murderers. So, the idea here is that disfluencies are simply fillers. So, somebody's just trying to stall to select a word that would be more appropriate. And the research actually doesn't really support this. There's some studies that show that this could be the case, but there are other studies that show that disfluencies are really words that we choose to use on purpose to signal a delay in how we're presenting our thought, to signal a delay in the narrative. And the theory here is that the word uh is used to signal a minor delay, and the word um is used to signal a major delay. So this really runs against this idea that disfluencies are unconscious, and as people are trying to find the right word, they're simply putting these disfluencies in without realizing it. This other theory suggests that they're deliberate. They're actually words that we use that have a purpose. So, in essence, they're not really superfluous, although they're usually negatively looked at, like a lot of people wish that they didn't use disfluencies, and a lot of people would prefer that other people didn't use them, but they do serve a purpose, and I don't think they're a signal of laziness, or people not learning to speak a language correctly, or anything like that. I think they're actually used to signal delays. I think this makes more sense. There's a study that talks about this. I'll put the reference to that one in the description of this video as well. One related theory that I want to mention here with disfluencies is the idea that perhaps disfluencies have become so popular because people don't want to be interrupted when they're talking. So They're talking to other people, and they really want to maintain control of the conversation a little bit. So when they know a delay is coming, they put this disfluency in, and that's like a placeholder. So it's really very consistent with the signaling of delay. What they're saying is, there's a delay coming, and I don't want to be interrupted. And one of the ideas here that I think of is that perhaps narcissism, this increase in narcissism, has led to more use of disfluencies. So what I mean by this is... Again, if somebody's trying to talk, and in general, people tend to be more narcissistic, they're more concerned that somebody's going to interrupt. They're more concerned that people aren't good at conversation. They're not good at the balance, the back and forth. So they put these disfluencies in, again, to kind of keep things locked up, to make sure that they can hold the floor and they can finish their thought. Now, another way to look at this is if you kind of run out of ideas in the middle of a sentence... You could use a disfluency to signal to somebody that they should interject. So there are a lot of different ways to look at disfluencies, but overall I think they are really more conscious than they are unconscious. And that's what I'm really getting at, is the theory behind why psychopaths use more disfluencies. I think that theory needs to be looked at more closely before drawing conclusions like we could identify psychopaths based on disfluencies. So with this study, a few people have wrote to me, they put comments on my channel, or sent me emails, and they were concerned that they were psychopathic because they used disfluency. So that's why I really addressed this question, this disfluency question specifically, more thoroughly here. Now, if somebody uses words like um, and uh, and like, and so, and all that, to me that's not really a sign at all of psychopathy. I really wouldn't worry about that at all. There's other symptoms of psychopathy that would be more concerning, like if somebody's callous, unemotional, deceptive, manipulative, has a lack of empathy. Elements like that, yes, those would be more concerning. But using disfluencies, I'm not really worried about that. That, in isolation, doesn't tell me really anything about a person and how many psychopathic traits they may or may not have. I think what's happened with disfluencies is we see this increase in perfectionism. So people are trying to eliminate every area of possible criticism. Again, this is highly consistent with an increase in narcissism, as I mentioned before. But I think that working to eliminate disfluencies, I think it's a noble effort. I think, again, it makes sense for formal conversation. But I also believe it comes at a cost. Somebody's really trying to focus their energy on being perfect and not using the signals that they've become accustomed to using. And this comes at the cost of not focusing on their topic. I would rather... Listen to somebody who uses disfluencies, but tells the story the way they wanted to tell it. They tell the story accurately, and with all the correct emotion infused that they wanted. If that comes at the price of a few disfluencies, I'm okay with that. I'm worried that there's too much focus here on being perfect. We already see this emphasis on appearing physically perfect, where people don't want to have their picture taken or be recorded on video unless there's no flaws. And now we're moving to where people are paying attention to language and saying, oh, because you use um or uh, something's wrong with you. This is a dangerous trend, in my opinion. And again, I think this is so linked to narcissism and perfectionism, I'm just kind of worried about it. And then with the study coming out, and this came out some time ago, but again, people read it whenever, like they might have read it a month ago or a year ago, and all these concerns coming in about disfluencies and psychopathy, yes, this is not something I would worry about. I wouldn't really spend any time being concerned with disfluencies, especially when it comes to concerns about how it links to psychopathy. The reality, of course, is that any behavior can be problematic at a certain level. So if you find yourself using disfluencies all the time, and people are always commenting on that and saying, look, it's distracting, I can't understand what you're saying, well, then maybe you want to look at it in terms of what you can do to reduce the use of disfluencies, but it still doesn't mean there's any psychopathy going on. Those are two completely different areas there. And again, I don't think it's logical to invest a lot of time being concerned about being a psychopath just based on some language tendencies. So moving back to these studies, yes, these types of studies are interesting, and psychopathy is an interesting topic. A lot of people are fascinated with psychopathy, sociopathy, narcissism, and even murders, like serial killers. But we have to be careful about the kinds of connections we're making. We're taking really subtle signs, and these studies can be misinterpreted. It's certainly not the fault of people who produce the literature. It's more in how people interpret the literature. There needs to be a certain level of experience and training to interpret research literature. There are a lot of subtleties and nuances to research literature, so careful interpretation is really the key. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita
0: Brevis.